Hello and welcome. My name is Malcolm Evans, and I'm Professor of Public International Law at the University of Bristol. I'm also co-director of its Human Rights Implementation Centre, and I'm also the former chair of the United Nations Subcommittee on the Prevention of Torture. This is Guantanamo Bay, Does Torture Work? It is episode three of a short series of podcasts calling for the closure of Guantanamo Bay detention camp. Guantanamo Bay itself opened in 2002, and so here we are, a shameful 20th anniversary of the Guantanamo detention camp. Mohamedou is a Mauritanian citizen who was detained at Guantanamo for 14 years without charge. In this podcast, we are going to spend a little time hearing from Mohamedou of his experience of Guantanamo Bay, of the experience of being a victim of torture. I should say before we start this podcast, there may be descriptions of torture and listeners should be aware of that. I started by asking Mohamedou if torture works. I get very uncomfortable especially in the United States of America, with the question whether torture works. Because if they say it works, then they will come back and torture us. And if they say it doesn't work, then I have to bet on their verdict. I cannot, I'm not a f- philosopher, but I can tell you in my experience. So when I was under pain, I did not care about the punishment that would befall me. I only wanted them to stop the pain. And this is like on record. This is not something that a story, this is on record that could be shown to you. That when they came to me, I remember this Richard Zuli, his name Richard Zuli, he's a very known cop. His only qualification for Guantanamo Bay that he was involved in torturing black people and putting them in a prison turned out wrongfully. Some of them spent about 20 years in prison, wrongful conviction. He was securing wrongful conviction of black people by torturing them. He was the best candidate to come to Guantanamo Bay, taking the beautiful experience of Chicago uh, Police Department to Guantanamo Bay. He came to me one day because after 70 days of torture, I didn't feel anything. I was like a stone. They asked me, I said, nothing, no, no answer. Just like you interrogating a stone. And he wanted really to change the game because he wanted to quote unquote break me. I was broken, but in a way that I was useless. And he wanted really to give me a jolt, jolt, what they call it, a jolt, like mm-hmm. electricity jolt. Yeah. He came to me and said he would kidnap my mom and she would be, he inferred, he didn't say it, but he said, in men only prison, I will put her. And then I was like, okay, anything you want, I will say, anything I will say. And then I wrote a confession of a fictional operation that never happened. 
he was later like CIA later told him and FBI turned out. This didn't happen. He didn't do this. We know he didn't do it. And then they came back to me. They said, we want to put you on polygraph. I was so scared. I don't want polygraph because polygraph will reveal the truth. I don't want them to know the truth because the truth means torture. The lie means freedom of torture. I said, I don't want polygraph. He said, the government said, you need. But I said, if I do the polygraph, I will take back everything. Because I didn't tell you the truth. Uh, he was very angry, but he said the government was. And then not once, twice they did the polygraph. And every single time, I was completely and 100% acquitted by this uh, you know, a friend of mine that is a computer. And uh, this is torture. I don't know any case in Guantanamo Bay where it worked. Mm -hmm. Not one single person in Guantanamo Bay that I know mm -hmm. from my co-detainees who was tortured admitted, did admit to uh, uh, something that they did. One question that is often asked is whether it's ever possible to come to terms with one's experience with what has happened to you. What, what is your reflection on that? A lot of people tell me, ah, you say you forgave people and so, you just want to promote yourself, which is correct actually. <laughs> <laughs> so I really, really mean, and I tell you why. When I was kidnapped, I was taken by a special unit, Jordanian unit. The one who spoke to me spoke in Jordanian accent. And there are others who didn't speak. I don't know from what country they were. They wore those black ninja type where you cannot say anything. I stayed eight months in dark prison. I don't know where. Later on, I think it's in Jordan. Most of the time, I didn't know day from night. And then I would count in my head. After eight months, Later on, I realized I lost 10 days. I don't know how, no clue. So they came to me one day after this eight months, one of the guards threw a garbage bag, black. You know those heavy duty bags? Throw it, he said, you're going home. And I start crying. You know, like when after eight months in darkness, in interrogation, threat, beating, you are so vulnerable and I was crying, I didn't know because I felt only safe in the cell. I didn't want anyone, I didn't want any contact. And then he said, you're going home. And then they took me, you know, blindfolded me, took me. And I sat in front of middle-aged man, little bit big. And then he was telling me, he threw my portemonnaie. I remember I had my German driver license. Canadian driver license. I had, I think, 30 or $80 on me. Some Mauritanian change. He said, count, and ID card. He said, count. I did like anything. I said, yes, okay. I don't know what he expected me actually to tell him. No, you need to give me my money back. <laughs> this is like people who have the full backing and support of the most powerful country in the world to do whatever they need to do. And they took me and they put me in a truck and then I was again blindfolded. 
and earmuff. They played Abdul Halim Havel. Who knows Abdul Halim Havel? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. All those who don't know Abdul Halim Havel don't deserve to come here. He's <laughs> a very big Egyptian singer. They did this music, loud music, to disorientate me and not let me listen to their communication. You know. But I really prefer Abdul Halim than their communications. <laughs> mm. And then I stayed there. I want to pee, but I was so scared to tell them I want to pee because I didn't want them to change their mind and say, you are not going home. So, and I kept. So it was so much painful. And then all of a sudden, after two hours, I could hear the roar of the plane, the engine. And then someone started just like ripping through my clothes. With, and then they stripped me naked completely. And then only my like blindfold left. And then it seemed he is a doctor, you know, took a little bit to uh, tell me, like, to open my mouth. And I saw his arm is blunt. So I know this is, I'm in the hands of the U.S. And then I, it came to my mind those horrific documentaries I watched about American prison and the violence in American prison. I know I'm not going back home. I don't think we're ever going to stop torture. We're the only species on the face of the earth mm. that tortures its victims. Animals kill. They kill to eat. The lion kills the lion cubs that aren't his because that's what he does so that he can make more lion cubs. But he doesn't torture them. He just kills them. No other species tortures. I don't know what it is about humans. But I think you have to just take one case at a time, change one person's life. That person goes out and does other things. Mohamedou succeeded. His book, I believe, helped get him out. And then the movie was supposed to help get him out. But then it didn't happen. And I gave up. I wasn't interested in the movie anymore. And all of a sudden, it, it came back. And we realized, Mohamedou and I realized, this movie can make a difference. This movie can get the conversation of Guantanamo out there again so that the government gets pushed to get the other 39 out. And that's our goal. It won't stop torture in another country, but if we can close Guantanamo, we will have changed the lives of the 39 people who are there. And that's huge. And that's what lawyers can do. Well, that was Mohamedou Oud Slahi and Nancy Hollander, speaking at the University of Bristol's Human Rights Implementation Centre in March 2022. The Human Rights Implementation Centre is one of the world's most prominent organisations working for the prevention of torture and ill-treatment around the world. Please use bristol.ac.uk slash research hyphen Guantanamo, or the link in the podcast description to find out more about this work. And I would like to welcome back Nancy Hollander to the podcast to reflect and to comment on what we've heard about torture. I'd like to start, Nancy, by referring to something that Mohamedou said in his book, and that is that he, and I quote, yesed every accusation. Now, I think this is important 
because many claim that torture works. I would like to start off by asking you to comment on the claim that is sometimes made that torture may be an evil, but sometimes it's a necessary evil, or indeed the lesser of two evils. How would you respond to that? Thanks, Malcolm. That's such an important question because, first of all, torture, in my view, is morally abhorrent and can't be used. Secondly, it is illegal under federal law in the U.S., state law in the U.S., international law, treaties, etc. It can't be used. And I want to go back to that in a minute when we talk about whether it is being used. But the issue of does it work? Historically, it does not work. People will say just about anything to make the torture stop. In Muhammadu's case, he was emphatically denying everything correctly because he was innocent. And then they started torturing him, but then they also asked questions like this. I can tell you some that are public. For example, Mohamedou, you intended to blow up the tower in Toronto, didn't you? Yes. And that was for Al-Qaeda, wasn't it? Yes. Well, in the first place, Mohamedou was being tortured and hoped that answering these questions, yes, would make the torture stop. And in the second place, he didn't even know if there was a tower in Toronto. In fact, there's no evidence that anyone was going to blow up a tower in Toronto. And those were the kinds of questions they were asking. What finally broke him, I think, more than anything, more than taking him out on a boat, more than breaking his ribs, more than telling him he was going to be put in a hole and no one was going to ever know where he was that Mr. X told him, more than the physical pain of the torture was when a man who in Guantanamo and in the film is known as Captain Collins who in reality is Richard Zuli, a cop from Chicago and indeed a bad cop from Chicago. And he brought the methods he had used there to torture people and get innocent people to confess to Guantanamo. And he brought a letter to Mohamedou. The letter itself is not public, but we know what it says and can talk about that. And the letter said, in essence, if you don't talk to us, we're going to bring your mother to Guantanamo. And he says to Mohamedou, I can't promise that she'll be safe here with all these men. And at that point, it was over for him. He said, I'll say anything you want. And they stopped torturing him while he yesed. But he was always, till the moment he left Guantanamo, afraid that the torture could begin again. And that fear itself was in many ways torture. He was put into solitary confinement, which the UN has decided is torture after a number of days, and he was there for months. But the bottom line is, I don't care whether it works or not. We can't do it. And in reality, there is no evidence historically that it does work. And as a lawyer, what use? possibly could such information be resulting from such treatment if it were, for example, to be tried to use, be used within courts within the US legal process, for example? That raises another question. 
There have been incidents in the U.S. they've tried to use it and have failed. But recently, in another case in Guantanamo, not Mohamedou's, that I'm involved in, Abrahim al-Nasri, the judge in the military commission said that it was okay to use tortured evidence in pretrial if the judge thought it was reliable. And that is now being litigated as we speak. The government backed off it to some degree, um, but where he came up with that, nobody knows. Um, But talking about the military commissions is a whole other discussion about what we in the U.S. would call a kangaroo court. Uh, It's not a real court under the U.S. legal system. Could that be the very reason why they think it might be? Because, of course, the U.N. Convention against torture prohibits the use of evidence acquired through torture and particularly confession evidence being used in court proceedings. Yes, it does. And the judge took that to mean in trial. That treaty also says that when someone has been tortured, the torturers or suspected torturers are supposed to be prosecuted and that the people who've been tortured are supposed to receive damages. Now, This is not the first treaty the United States has broken. It has a history of breaking treaties and violating treaties. But this is a very clear requirement of the Convention Against Torture that the U.S. has simply ignored. And to your knowledge, has the interrogation tactics that were used at Guantanamo actually contributed to the securing of any convictions at a criminal trial? No, they have not. There was a film that came out, 30, dark, 30-something, because I hated it so much I can never remember its name, which tried to argue that torture worked. But it does not, and it has not. So I think I know what you're going to say, but I want to ask you the question anyway. What has the use of these torture tactics actually achieved then? Well, I don't think they've achieved anything. Now, there may have been cases in the U.S. historically where torture was used And it wasn't described as torture, which is what the government has tried to do here. That has been used historically. Fear as a torture method has certainly been used in the past in legal cases. But that should not be the precedent that the U.S. follows. We hope that the United States government has learned from that and will not continue to use it. But... On the other hand, the U.S. will never admit fully, except Obama said, we tortured some folks, which I found an offensive way to refer to people as some folks. We tortured men, and in one case, a woman, uh, and probably other women. And his response then was, well, we're not going to do any reconciliation. We're not going to prosecute anyone, even though we know who did these things. We're going to look forward. And my response as a criminal defense lawyer to that was, well, maybe I can just go into court with a client who robbed a bank or raped a woman and say, Your Honor, we're not going to prosecute. We just should look forward. And of course, it's ridiculous. But that's the position that President Obama took, admitted people had been tortured and then failed to prosecute anyone. And we know who tortured Mohamedou. They've spoken out. And don't you think it's a little odd? Or how do you respond to, or how really do the U.S. respond to it rather than 
you, given that the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, the International Covenant on Civil Political Rights, just about every single human rights instrument that has ever been drafted, many of which, of course, are binding on the the United States, says that, quote, no one shall be subject to torture, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment, without exception. Without exception. You're absolutely right. Without exception. So, as I said at the beginning, it is, in my view, morally wrong. It's illegal under the U.S. um, criminal system to torture someone. And every single instrument and treaty that the U.S. has signed Common Article 3 of the Geneva Convention, and of course the ones you mentioned, and specifically the Convention Against Torture, the U.S. has signed all of these, but yet the U.S. will not agree to let itself be prosecuted under the International Criminal Court. And we know the reason for that is that it's afraid that that court will prosecute people. And isn't it possibly one of the strangest things, oddest and most frightening things about the construction of Guantanamo, its placement, etc., was that it was deliberately designed to try to avoid lawful scrutiny in the first place? Absolutely. I understand they looked at some other places and they picked Guantanamo because it is, although under U.S. rents it from Cuba into perpetuity, and I guess it's a lease, but the government took the position that it wasn't the U.S., it was Cuban. And, of course, the United States Supreme Court knocked that down every time it came up. But at first, they said there would be no petition for a writ of habeas corpus. The prisoners can file them, but they don't get any relief. And finally, the U.S. Supreme Court, in the fifth of a series of cases, a case called Bomidien, that was the name of the prisoner who brought the case, that they could not only petition in the U.S. District Court, but they could have hearings, and those hearings would matter. And yet then, when they began to have these hearings, and the judges were finding in favor of the detainees because the government had no or almost no evidence against them, the Obama administration's Justice Department appealed almost all of them. Those people could have walked out. Mohamedou could have walked out. I attribute the fact that he spent another, what, seven years in prison after the judge ruled in his favor. I attribute that to Obama because it was Obama who said his Justice Department under his attorney general appealed virtually all of them. The government can't speak out of both sides of its mouth. But in fact, that's what it did. And there has been a lot of attempting to justify that which must have been known to have simply been unjustifiable. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And then we come to, we'll skip over Trump because there's no point in talking about what he did. And we come to President Biden, who also said he wanted to close Guantanamo and only just now has set up a procedure to start to do that. Half of the 37 people who are still there have already been cleared or released. Well, perhaps we'll leave it on this podcast there for now, and we'll pick up on that in the last podcast in this series, looking 
at the potential options for the closure of Guantanamo, why perhaps it doesn't happen, and some of the broader questions concerning how we treat people in detention and oversee and scrutinise to try to make sure that people are not tortured and ill-treated whilst they're in detention. But for now, thank you very much, Nancy. Thank you, Malcolm. If you've been inspired by the conversations in this podcast and want to find out more about the torture prevention work at the University of Bristol's Human Rights Implementation Centre and the role you could play as a researcher, as a student or as a potential partner, please use bristol.ac.uk slash research hyphen Guantanamo or the link in the podcast description to find out more about this work.